starting with verse 12, John chapter 2. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brethren and his disciples, and they continued there not many days. And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. The turning of water into wine was a privately performed supernatural act, a miracle that authenticated who Jesus was. Unlike this first cleansing the temple that's done publicly. And we see as a result that the disciples believed. So the Holy Spirit is working in the lives of people around Jesus. And then in verses 13 and 14, this is at least the second visit of Jesus to the temple as we know that he visited when he was younger, and it's his first cleansing of the temple. In the Old Testament, the leprous house would be examined by the priest. And what I take from Leviticus 14 is if the house fails the inspection and fails that inspection, a sufficient amount of times, the house will be demolished. Jesus' priest, we know that Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. Jesus' priest is coming to examine the temple, and he's examining it for spiritual leprosy. And if the temple does not pass inspection, Jesus, as priest, will cleanse it. Toward the end of the ministry of Jesus, again before Passover, Jesus as priest, once again, will examine the temple for spiritual leprosy. And if the temple flunks the second inspection by Jesus as priest, Jesus as priest will cleanse the temple the second time. At this point, if the spiritual leprosy in the temple shows up and remains, Israel, who has repeatedly, the religious leaders who have repeatedly ignored the cleansing of Jesus as priest, will have to deal with Jesus as priest and as king. Jesus as priest will declare the temple condemned. Jesus as prophet will tell the truth about the state of the temple, but not only that, he will predict its destruction. Jesus as priest and king will destroy the leprous temple. Some years later, a generation later, in 70 AD. Now you might say, now I can see how the destruction of the temple in 70 AD involves Jesus as king and Jesus as prophet since he told the truth about what was going to go on in the temple, predicted its downfall, 
and pronounce judgment, but how would the destruction of the temple involve Jesus as a priest? A priest of all people would never destroy buildings. Where do we see anywhere in scripture where the priest destroyed buildings? That wasn't part of his job, was it? Well, I'd ask you to turn to Leviticus chapter 14, verses 43 through 45. Leviticus chapter 14, verses 43 through 45. And these instructions that God has given, as he so often does, are quite meticulous. They are to be followed to the very smallest detail. And in verse 43 of Leviticus 14, we read, and if the plague come again and break into the house and after he hath taken away the stones and after he hath scraped the house and after it is plastered, then the priest shall come and look and behold, if the plague be spread into the house, it is a fretting leprosy in the house, it is unclean. Now, let's look at what the priest does. And he shall break down the house the stones of it, and the temple thereof, and all the mortar of the house, and he shall carry them forth out of the city into an unclean place. So a priest actually had the job of doing this. That's not to say necessarily that he's not going to have Levites assisting, this temple that we see here at the time of Jesus will come down. Jesus' priest will condemn the temple in his second visit. Jesus as a prophet will tell the truth concerning the leprous condition of the temple and he will predict that the temple will come down. And then years later, Jesus as priest and king will destroy this temple. Well, let's look, go back to John chapter 2, 14. We read in 13, and the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. As we've studied this, in prior weeks, what's right about this picture? It's easy to look at what's wrong with the picture, but what's good about this picture? Well, the selling of oxen. Jesus didn't condemn the selling of oxen. There were there was also the selling of sheep, the selling of doves. There were going to be people that would come who did not have what they needed for the sacrifice and those things were there to be bought, and the changing of money. Free males had a responsibility to pay, and they had to pay with a certain type of currency. Those changers were needed. But what's wrong with this picture? The place. Why is it going on in the temple of the Gentiles? 
Why would it go, if you're concerned about the evangelism and the discipleship of Gentiles, why is all of this going on? And just imagine what could be going on here. How many tens of thousands potentially of people are coming that are going to need their money changed and also going to need to buy animals. You're not talking about 10 or 20 or 30 that you might see in some picture that you might have seen in a Bible when you were younger. You're potentially looking at tens of thousands of animals that are in the area where the Gentiles were to worship. There was a problem, a big problem with the place. Well, where else were you going to do it? Well, you could do it when, where you used to be, where they used to actually keep the animals. But it was more convenient to do it this way. The ends justify the means. No, the place, definitely a wrong place. Also, as we tied in with the second cleansing, the cheating of people. And one of the biggies in scripture, never sinfully take advantage of the vulnerable. Even you know, in scripture when it was talking about slaves, people can say, well, slaves had no rights. Slaves definitely had rights. They were not to be made into anything like an animal. Actually, the way some people might picture the way in the Old Testament, slavery was, it was worse than being an animal. Now, that isn't the way that God did that. That's not the way God set things up. No, the vulnerable, no matter what someone was a slave, uh, a indentured servant, um, somebody who was poor, didn't matter. You never, ever took advantage of the vulnerable. And what's one of the big reasons why the people of Israel ended up going into their own kind of slavery? Northern Kingdom ended up going into slavery around 722, I believe it was, BC. And then closer to 600 BC, the Southern Kingdom ended up going into slavery. What is one of the big reasons besides not keeping the Sabbath and of course not worshiping God in the way that they should worship God, but what is repeated time and time again? Don't take advantage of the vulnerable. Biblical message, don't take advantage of the vulnerable. What it comes down to, to a large extent is, you take advantage of the vulnerable and you're gonna be vulnerable. And that is what these religious leaders of all people who should know their scripture are doing. They're taking advantage of the vulnerable. Jesus acting as priest is examining the temple that the priests of Israel are running. Think about that. Jesus acting as priest is examining the temple that the priests of Israel are running and things don't look very good at this point. Verse 15, and when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables. Once again, Jesus took what should not have been there, but was readily available to make a whip. With all these animals and all the rope that was going to be around there, rope-like material was going to be around there, he's going to have absolutely no trouble 
finding the material to make a whip. And the pandemonium must have been amazing. Think of all of those animals. Think of all the panic with all that money potentially flying around. And then people jumping after the money to make sure that they got it. And then perhaps even if you had some dishonest people there, people, you know what can happen? My wife and kids have made fun of me that, you know, if I hear a dime drop, my head's right down there like that, you know. Uh, well, think about what that might have been for people that were just heard, saw and heard all that money falling down and they, did, they were not the most honest people in the world. You might have had a lot of diving going on too, for all I know. It's all surmising, but you can imagine it was a huge mess. Perhaps tens of thousands of animals. Consider how many people coming from not just Israel, but other countries as well for the Passover. And all that money flying around potentially. Verse 16. And said unto them that sold doves, take these things hence, make not my father's house and a house of merchandise. Notice how he singles out the selling of doves. Who were the ones that bought the doves? Often people that did not have a whole lot. People who were more vulnerable than perhaps the middle class or the rich. How dare they do this thing that is condemned in the Old Testament time after time after time. How dare they do this in the house of God? Verse 17, and his disciples remembered that it was written, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. We see that in Psalm 69, 9. And we're seeing a great love for Jesus' Father's house. At the same time that you're seeing a great hatred for the pollution of his father's house. The zeal that we see in Psalm 69.9 will lead to Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. And this leads beautifully into what follows. Verse 18, then answered the Jews and said unto him, what sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? So the temple has flunked the spiritual leprosy test given by Jesus' priest and the spiritual leadership of the temple, like we saw last week, is morally bankrupt, and these Jews are going to ask Jesus as prophet for a sign. He's just given them one, but they want a sign. So two potential problems, didn't they just see one? And then Jesus is the greatest prophet this earth has ever seen or will ever see. In scripture, we see the importance of signs, also known as miracles. Often, we'll, we'll loosely, as Christians, we'll loosely use the term miracle. Oh, that was, a, that was a miracle that I didn't get into an auto accident today. There were two cars coming before, you know, in front of me, and somehow, you know, a work of God, it was a miracle. Well, Supernatural acts are not necessarily miracles. Now, all miracles are supernatural acts. Well, like another of those things you learn in school, all squares are rectangles, but not all rectangles are squares. All miracles are supernatural acts, but not all supernatural acts are miracles. Miracles are a special supernatural act. 
Miracles in scripture always authenticate the message and the messenger. We have examples of that in scripture with Moses, with Elijah and Elisha. Why would God have to, why would God authenticate Moses? Everybody knows that Moses is a great man. Of course you need to obey Moses, but that's looking at it from our perspective. What did the children of Israel often do when Moses said something? Whine, 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 complain, complain. You know, they were such whiny, complaining individuals. Time after time after time, we see God authenticating Moses. Not only authenticating Moses when it came to those people, even authenticating Moses within his own family. Where he ended up with Miriam, ending up, when she was complaining, she ended up getting leprosy. Once again, this is an authentication of who Moses was, God's man. Jesus is authenticated time after time after time. But the miracles that authenticated great messengers like Moses, Elijah, Elisha, and even Jesus never saved. Only the supernatural inward work of the Holy Spirit saves. Verse 19. Jesus answered and said unto them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now when Jesus says destroy, destroy this temple in three days I will raise it up, he's talking about himself. But might Jesus be implying that the physical temple will be coming down? But in contrast to himself, it's not going to be resurrected. The enemies of Jesus will attempt and succeed in destroying this temple, being Jesus. While at the same time, when, as they do this, they will actually be destroying the physical temple that they enjoy so much. Now, they won't be doing it physically, but what they are doing by, kill, by destroying Jesus, killing Jesus, they will essentially be destroying this physical temple that is so beautiful and they love so much. The temple that Jesus is talking about will be raised up. That's R-A-I-S-E-D, raised. The physical temple, so Jesus' temple will be raised up. The physical temple will be R-A-Z-E-D, it will be brought down. His resurrection is a witness both to what Jesus has said about himself, but also to what he said about the future destruction of the temple. And as we see this, it's to a certain extent, it's like the Garden of Eden, we see light and darkness. We see God and Satan, light and darkness, straight versus crooked. We see Jesus, at the same time we see these dishonest religious leaders. Secondly, we see a refusal of the religious leaders to deal with reality. Notice their response, show us a sign. They just saw a huge sign. Oh, we need to see a sign. 
I'd ask you to turn to Acts chapter 5, which gives us an, another example of how these religious leaders can just not get it. When you're talking to your children, if you have children, or if you're talking to some friend and you just try to talk and talk and try to explain and the person just kind of looks at you with this dull look and has no idea what you're talking about. Or if you can remember when you were younger and your parents were trying to patiently explain something to you and you just didn't get it. Maybe five years, ten years later, you realize, you know, my parents weren't as dumb as I thought they were. They, you know, they get smarter every day. Well, these religious leaders just didn't seem to get it. And if you remember the story about the, you know, the uh, people of God and Book of Acts, the Christians, that you, know, you have them being in prison and yet now they've been released. how they get released? how these men of God get released? Of course, the religious leaders aren't looking at them. They can look at them as Jesus' disciples, but not as godly men. And we read in Acts chapter 5, verse 24. Now when the high priest and the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these things, they doubted of them whereunto this would grow. Then came one and told them, saying, Behold, the men whom ye put in prison are standing in the temple teaching and teaching the people. Then went the captain of the, with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should have been stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, now, at this particular point, these people that you put in jail have been supernaturally released. What's going to be your response? I think mine might be, how did that happen? This is incredible. How, how did that happen? That's not the response. Saying, did we not straightly command you that you should not teach in his name? They don't, they don't seem to get it, do they? Here you have a sign that what they are saying is absolutely true. And the response is, did we not straightly command you that you should not teach in his name? And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. I think they did a good job of doing that themselves. Think about this. Jesus and his people his disciples are authenticated, and their response is, didn't we tell you to shut up? The message that they're telling him to be quiet about has been authenticated by the God of the universe, and the response is, didn't we tell you to stop doing, not to do this? Refusal of the religious leaders to deal with reality. Let's get back to our scripture in John. Thirdly, the concept of punishment in the Bible tied in with issues such as perverted worship, theft, and the treatment of the vulnerable and corrupt leadership in the church. 
And fourthly, we can see that Jesus is God and therefore part of the Trinity. Jesus is the only person in chapters 1 and 2 of the book of John is to be worshipped and prayed to. <clears throat> now, you say, well, that's obvious. But it's not obvious to all people who call themselves Christians. We are not to pray to John. Some people call him John the Baptist. We'll call him John the Baptizer. That is actually a good um, word from the Greek and sounds better if you're Reformed. But yes, he baptized. Not Mary, full of grace, in the way that Roman Catholics look at her as being full of grace. Perverting scripture, making one of the heroes in the faith into someone who is, in some cases, if you look at the symbolism, on par with Jesus. Not the disciples, not the saints. And by the way, one of the, part of the logic of, of, of uh, praying to Mary is that how could Je you know, I pray to Mary, Mary goes to Jesus, and how could Jesus turn down his mother? Number five, the importance of belief and unbelief. A witness to whether someone is a believer or not a believer is a godly life. These people are not exhibiting a godly life. Works don't save, but they are a witness to whether someone is regenerated or not. There are people who basically teach that if, if you come down the aisle and say that you accept Jesus, and then you just go live a riotous life the rest of your life, that, that, that you're saved. And scripture doesn't teach that. Scripture teaches the idea of belief and actions. It's like, is it belief? Is it actions? Yes. They're tied together. You can't separate them. Does the person, do we believe that what the Bible says about Jesus being true and without error? Do you truly believe on Jesus and are you living for him? Belief in the person and work of Jesus is vitally important. Belief in Jesus is an eternal necessity that leads to action and that's good works. Number six, the vital importance of witnesses that we see here. There are witnesses concerning the person and work of Jesus. There are witnesses to what's going on in the temple and witnesses are considered to be vitally important in scripture. And think about the witnesses concerning Jesus. John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, John um, and, and the other disciples, uh, Mary, his family, the public who see these miracles, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, his enemies, some of which, you say, well, his enemies, why are they going to be witnesses? Don't forget, not only did they see what Jesus did, but we see in the book of Acts that all of these, a lot of these priests ended up giving their lives to Jesus because of the work of the Holy Spirit. The miracles that Jesus performed, again, authenticated who he was, who he said he was. Prophecy in scripture, scripture itself, all are witnesses concerning Jesus. 
The second cleansing later on in the ministry of Jesus, once again, will, will lead to his death. This temple, the body of Jesus, though, will be resurrected. Jesus as prophet is predicting this, and notice that Jesus is taking credit for raising his body, which means that he is God, part of the Trinity. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. Let's look at verse 20. Then he then said the Jews, 40 and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? Again, they don't get it. Any more than they seem to understand the seriousness and significance of the temple cleansing. Verse 22. When therefore he is risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus said. What a contrast. We, end, we actually end up having the story of the cleansing of the temple bookended, so to speak, by disciples believing and disciples believing. What a contrast. His disciples remembered and believed. Remember what was done with these words of Jesus before his crucifixion. Remember how they were dishonestly twisted and what Jesus actually said was not believed. So they didn't believe what Jesus said and then on top of that, at the time before his crucifixion, they twisted what he had to say. Jesus' prophet always tells the truth. You can be sure of that in every area of your life every day of your life, no matter how bad that day may happen to be. Jesus' priest intercedes for his people. There's one mediator, that's it. Not saints, not Mary. Jesus. Christians do not need Mary. And once, and I don't know how many times I'm going to end up repeating this in a pulpit, during sermons, if God gives me longer life, and that is, is that Mary was one of the heroes of the faith. This is nothing against Mary. But we don't need Mary or deceased people or any man-made creation. Jesus' priest loved his people and is there for them, always interceding. Jesus as king is king of the church and king of the world. Christians should not fear not obeying. I almost said something that was wrong. Christians should fear, must fear, not obeying Christ as king. While at the same time not fearing sickness and death. So impartially judge yourself and your sin and repent. Don't cut corners. Don't make excuses. Don't cut corners like these religious leaders did. At the same time, trusting in yourself and your works. Do not mistreat the vulnerable who are in your midst. 
be prepared to have your spiritual house inspected. What should our response be when plagues hit us? I know in my own life, there have been times when it's one thing happens, the second thing happens, the third thing happens, perhaps the fourth thing happens. That's a good sign, I mean, that's a good time to take spiritual inventory. Instead of complaining, wallowing in pity, but is God getting my, is God getting my attention here? Something I need to really pay attention to. So what happens, what should our response be when plagues, when bad things happen to us? Fasting is mentioned in scripture. Prayer, Bible reading, are certainly good biblical principles, as well as questioning concerning what might I be doing wrong? Now, we can see in the book of Job, that Job was doing a tremendous amount of good things, and we see in scripture that he ended up having a lot of bad things happen to him, and some of his friends, or three friends, well, so-called friends, ended up pointing out things in his life that weren't necessarily there between the three of them. We might be having things come into our life for who knows what reason, but always question, are these things tied into things that I am doing or not doing in my life? Take spiritual inventory. Look at yourself. Ask your friends. Ask friends who are honest with you. The ones who will basically say, yep, uh, you've been exercising today, you've been working hard, yeah, you do stink. Instead of saying, oh yeah, oh, you smell great. No, go to your friends that will tell you that yeah, you, you do stink, you've been working out hard today. Go to them. Go to people that will honestly tell you, yeah, I've been noticing in your life, you've been spiritually slipping. Impartially judge yourself and your sin and repent. Do not cut corners like the ungodly religious leaders did, while at the same time, trusting in yourself and your works. Don't own your sin. Notice what we do when we're criticized by someone when we're wrong. I know being married, my wife can say, or I can say to her, you're doing something wrong. What do we do as spouses? What do we do as children? What do we do as any, any type of position in life? Someone comes up to us and maybe hits us at a vulnerable moment and says, you've been doing such and such wrong, you need to change. What do we do? Do we automatically say, God, is what that person's saying true? Do I need to repent of that? Or do we own that sin? Do we take ownership of that sin? Do we defend that sin no matter how much evidence there is that we are committing that sin and we shouldn't be doing that? Oh, I own that sin, I wanna keep that sin. I've got a, actually, I've got a signed deed that basically says, I own that sin. Is that what we should be doing? Absolutely not. Impartially judge yourself and your sin and repent. Trust Jesus, not yourself. Be like the godly man in Psalm chapter one. Do not fear the ungodly who we see described in Psalm 2. 
And if you are not a Christian, if you're sitting here and you're not a Christian, stop trusting the stupid stuff. That's what we do when we're not a Christian. Even, we even do it as Christians. But stop trusting the stupid stuff. Be like the believing disciples, not the unbelieving religious leaders. Believe it or not, believe. Truly repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, who is prophet, priest, and king. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son Jesus. We thank you that no matter how much it hurts, that we are, to, that we are called on to not own that sin, but to repent of that sin. Knowing that as Christians, that if we confess our sins, truly confess our sins, that, we are, that you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. May we not trust in ourselves, but trust in your Son. In Jesus' name, amen.